Christmas can be highly predictable, can it? Just as expected. As predictable as our greatest hits playlist that uh, whatever services we use tend to bounce back to us because algorithms can figure out exactly what we like and there's probably people in People's Republic of China who are analyzing your psychosis right now. The decorations, yeah, just as we planned them. Maybe with a few new thrown in. The gifts, the gifts we already hope for. And maybe if we're control freaks, already ordered for ourselves or ordered our loved ones to get for us. The menus, the sequences of the next few days, the photos, all according to our various families' predetermined scripts. Or better yet, according to the histories that those same services can provide to us. A photo sharing suggestion, maybe one will pop up right now during this sermon. Christmas, familiar, warm, cozy. Sweet as hot chocolate and marshmallows. Comfortable as our favorite silly old Christmas sweater. As sentimental as yet another one of those B-grade Christmas movies that roll over and over again on the, on the services. As unchallenging to us as Santa Claus's diet plan and workout regimen. No breaking news, because there's really nothing new. But what if, what if, can you imagine with me, the true Christmas, the truth of Christmas, is news and is always news. And I do mean news for anyone who is part of God's kingdom, the kingdom that Christmas announces. What if Christmas is not so much about our decorations as God's declarations? What if Christmas really is about the gospel of God. What if Christmas was news and is breaking news to you and to me this very night, if you have ears to hear and a heart to receive the King? It was news to the shepherds of the angelic host. Think about it. The, the, the angelic host, the angels were ecstatic, excited, and all filled with the wonder of what they proclaimed to those shepherds out in the fields. What if the Son of God's advent at Christmas is not a one-off event? I mean, what if the way Jesus came is the key to the story? And I do mean the story, the story that governs all of human history and before and after eternity, consistent with the larger truth that in fact is there over and over again in Jesus's parables that will be opening up over the next year and more as we work our way through Luke's gospel. You know those parables of the surprising, unexpected, mustard seed kingdom of God. Not our prepackaged Christmas, 
the mustard seed kingdom of God. You know, if you went to Sunday school some, you, you tend to think, yeah, I, I know the way the parables work, and I know the bad guys and the good guys, and I know the way they turn out, and I always align with the good guys, so I'm good. I, I get the parables down, Pastor. But no, you got to understand, and we'll dig into this as we move through Luke. In every one of Jesus' parables, his hearers were shocked because there are totally unexpected twists and turns and surprises. And you know, one of the joys of beginning to dig into Luke's gospel yet again as, as I prepare to preach through it, I was struck by, among other things, the fact that, man, at the very heart of Luke's gospel, at the center of the central section of Luke's gospel, that is, the travel narrative that moves from the transfiguration all the way to setting us up for Passion Week. Yeah, in that central part, right in the heart of Luke's gospel, wouldn't you know the very center, and I do mean, this really struck me, the very center of the central part of Luke's gospel narrative, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we get two parables. Now, Matthew and Mark tell us about Jesus using these parables in different ways earlier, but Luke reminds us that Jesus repeated them later, and they come right in the center of the central part of Luke's gospel. And here's the way Luke gives them to us. He, that is Jesus, said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. You're supposed to notice that. We'll come back to that when we preach on this. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air Gentiles from all over the world, people from all over, made nests in its branches. And again, Jesus said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid. Did you hear that? That a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. What if, what if those parables point us back to the ultimate parable, only it really happened? See, God's kingdom and our salvation, if we are saved, doesn't come like the empires and the technologies and the marketing and the media of this age, but like a mustard seed, like leaven hidden in three measures of flour that ultimately will take over the whole thing and transform the whole thing from the inside out. God calls and empowers his children to see, especially in dark times, Anybody ever feel like you're living in dark times? Maybe not quite as bad as the first century BC and first century AD, but pretty dark. God empowers those who will respond to his call to see in the darkest times, but not with eyes of flesh, 
Your eyes of flesh don't do you much good when it gets really dark. You know that? Not according to human traditions or values, but with spirit-born hearts and eyes of faith. This is the good news from God who, according to the Bible, so often fulfills his plan and his promises in unexpected ways. Unexpected at least to our conventional wisdom and definitely bizarre according to the way Satan sees things. I mean, you want real politic? That's Satan. I mean, he, he's, got, he's got this whole world system down and he just does not get the way God works. Uh, neither did Caesar Augustus. Uh, we'll dig into this Luke chapter 2 quite extensively as we move through the Gospel of Luke, but just want to point out a couple things on the framing of this passage, this famous passage, the greatest of all the, the birth narratives that we read at Christmas time. Notice that the first person mentioned in the heart of the birth narrative is a guy named Caesar Augustus. Did you catch that? You're supposed to catch that. Luke really wants you to catch that. Um, Chiazar, Chiazar, Caesar. Um, originally the surname of the Julian family from Rome, only when Julius Caesar became the most powerful man in the Roman Empire, the great general, Chiazar, Caesar, was converted into a title a title that meant dictator. It was the title that Octavian, the great nephew of Julius, whom Julius adopted as his own son and designated to be his heir, and who in fact did become the emperor after going through a whole lot of battles and civil wars and you may remember Anthony and Cleopatra and that whole thing all the way through all that nevertheless then Caesar Augustus Octavian became the unquestioned emperor of the Roman Empire and by God's providence he was in charge of the civilized world when Jesus was born Caesar Augustus Augustus what does that mean Augustus that's the title the Roman Senate gave to Octavian. It means the illustrious one, or in fact, means revered one, worthy of adoration and worship. Now, that's a title no one had ever been accorded before by the Roman Senate, but they gave it to Octavian, Caesar Augustus. And Luke wants you to catch those titles as he opens the story of the birth of Jesus. That's the framer at the beginning. But by the way, in uh, 42 before Christ, the Senate, after Julius had been murdered, assassinated, deified Julius Caesar and gave him the title Duus Julius, the divine Julius. This meant he was a god. Julius Caesar, after he'd been massacred, you know, assassinated, was now God. And who's his son? Who's his adopted son? You got it, Octavian. So they started to refer to Caesar Augustus as the son of the God, 
Dewey Filius. Coins issued by Augustus featured Caesar, Julius Caesar's image and the inscription, Divine Caesar and Son of the God. An Egyptian inscription from a few years before Jesus was born calls Augustus Caesar a star shining with brilliance and lighting up the whole world. Other inscriptions refer to Caesar, Augustus, as the Prince of Peace. And man, he had imposed the peace of Rome by boot and sandal and sword everywhere he ruled. By God's providence, it set up the whole spread of Christianity a little while later, the Pax Romana. The gospel of peace of Augustus, that's the term they used in the Roman Empire, the gospel of peace of Augustus, was announced and enforced by sword throughout the empire. In the Roman Forum, the doors of the temple of war were closed about 10 years before Jesus was born and remained closed for three decades thereafter. It's supposed to be the golden age of peace. And over time, particularly in the Eastern Roman Empire, Augustus was referred to as the savior of the world. Now Luke assumes anybody reading his gospel knows all this, and they did back in the first century. So he's just introduced a guy who has all these titles by the world's media and marketing and by the empire's power. But you know what? God's word through Luke tells us Caesar Augustus is not the big deal. The most powerful man in late antiquity, arguably one of the handful of most powerful people who ever lived, is nothing compared to somebody we're about to meet. And he's not on a throne in Rome. He doesn't have a bunch of temples dedicated to him. He's different. You know what? Caesar Augustus is mentioned once and once only in the entire greatest story ever written. Isn't that cool? This is the first and the last time we ever read that name in the Bible. That's it, to introduce Luke chapter two. Because it turns out, according to the mustard seed kingdom of God, your only salvation is not found in high and mighty places, nor in high traditions, but in a lowly trough a feeding trough, a manger, and there a seemingly helpless baby who is proclaimed as the true Prince of Peace and the real savior of the world. Not a man who wanted to become divine, but the divine son who became man to save you. Not any person who wanted to become divine, but God who became a baby for your salvation. That's glory, that's peace, that's the savior. See, God's kingdom and our salvation do not come to and through self-promoting people and governments 
and politicians and people like you and me who in our flesh presume to reach up and take the fruit and decide for ourselves what is good and evil and redefine everything from politics to society to sexuality to the way we use our resources and steward our stuff that God has given to us. No, no, no. That's the way to hell. The way to heaven is to look down and humbly see the one who has humbly come to save your soul. A self-emptying Lord who assumed mortal flesh to justify you and atone for us. To this very day, the gospel of Christmas not only claims the heart of everyone who believes, but also stands the world's values on their head and emboldens you if you would believe that, that baby is infinitely greater than Caesar Augustus, if you're willing to believe that, if you're willing to believe in him, God will empower you not only to be justified and sanctified in that child born in Bethlehem, but to be part of his mustard seed kingdom, his leaven that seems hidden, but transforms the whole thing. Tonight, I wanna to invite you, it's Christmas. What is Christmas about? It's about the Christ who claims all of you if you will believe in him and will, in his grace, raise you up. That Christ, I wanna ask you by his grace to give your ears to hear and believe his gospel, the truth of his kingdom. Ask him for a heart to receive and to love his son and eyes to discern his body and the glory of who Jesus is. You know he's born in Bethlehem, right? It's not by accident, not only prophesied, not only the city from which David comes, but the city of bread, the house of bread. That's what that name means, house of bread, Bethlehem. And it's as if God said, Caesar Augustus, yeah, we put him there. Now he's finally gonna fulfill his purpose. He's gonna issue orders so that according to everything I've said, including not only the prophet Micah, but through Isaiah, the greater David will come, my son. And we're invited to come to his table tonight and celebrate the awesomeness of the God of grace who is most glorious in his humility toward us. Oh, come with bended knee. Don't look up to the high and mighty. With eyes of faith, see Jesus. He's before us. He's with us. And by his grace, by his Holy Spirit, we see the one at the right hand of the Father who extends 
salvation to all who call on his name. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this sermon from First Presbyterian Church in Starkville, Mississippi. If you want to find out more about our church and our ministries, please visit fpcstarkville.org. If you'd like someone to reach out to you and uh, maybe grab coffee or lunch to get to know us a little bit better, you can go to fpcstarkville.org connect and fill out the form there. And if you like what you're doing and want to see more, uh, go to fpcstarkville.org give to give.